Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. We may hope that we have made some sort of progress and how people are having a more complicated understanding of sex, gender, and sexuality, but you still take a biology class and it shows you two pictures of anatomy when you are learning about sex. And everybody is still being educated in a system that explains sex in a binary way and does not convey that there's variation for all of us in our sex characteristics, but that sex characteristics in general fall along a whole spectrum of possibilities. Most people, when they hear the term intersex, they imagine it's somebody with a non-binary gender identity. We're still at a very basic level of understanding. We have a long way to go for people to understand better. And until we complicate the way that we teach everybody about how bodies work, then that's what we're going to continue to produce. And for people to think of any variation on that as just wrong or scary. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Lucas, a youth participant in Outcasting's main studio in Westchester County, New York. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Andrea talks with Carrie Gabriel Costello and George Ann Davis about their experiences being intersex, which means that they were born with physical characteristics that don't fit into binary sex categories. Carrie is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and the director of the LGBT studies program there. Georgian is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas and board president of Interact, a nonprofit that advocates for intersex youth. In this conversation, Carrie and Georgian talk about what it means to be intersex and the difficulties that they and other intersex individuals face. This is the second part of a two-part series. Both parts are available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Georgian Davis and Carrie Gabriel Costello. Welcome back to Outcasting, and thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the, uh, the invitation to be here with you. In the first part of this conversation, we talked about some of the basics of what it means to be intersex, a few specific intersex conditions, and how some intersex people are subjected to surgery they haven't consented to in order to make their bodies conform to preconceived ideas about binary gender norms. We talked about androgen and sensitivity syndrome, is that a common intersex condition? And can you explain what it is, Georgian? I'm not sure if it's uh, more common than other intersex traits that exist. It certainly is not the most common intersex trait. What it means is that during gestational development, the fetus wasn't responding to androgens in ways that we would typically expect. So their body were insensitive to the androgens that they were um, sort of being exposed to. And androgen is sort of an umbrella term for things like testosterone. And androgen insensitivity syndrome, it's the intersex trait I have. What's important to note is that there's really no clear test to know if you're completely insensitive or if you are partially insensitive to androgens. They're just some sort of arbitrary measures to sort of determine how much uh, your body responds to androgens. 
So the reason why I think in the case of partial androgen insensitivity syndrome, I think it's often used as sort of a generic diagnosis for folks who have genitalia externally that may not resemble stereotypical genitalia. It's important to note, though, that even the terms that we use, like, for example, syndrome or conditions, can be viewed by some as very problematic. Because what does it mean to say you have a syndrome or to say you have a condition, right? It really is pathologizing as opposed to thinking about it being a natural variation. It's one of the reasons why I say things like I have an intersex trait. And I still identify as having complete androgen insensitivity. Some people drop off this syndrome, and, and sometimes I do, but that is the diagnosis that I have. So, Georgian, beyond involuntary surgical interventions, are there other issues in the way that healthcare providers treat intersex patients? People with intersex traits are often pathologized by medical providers as opposed to thinking about the presence of an intersex trait, however that may surface um, in our bodies, is just being a natural variation, whether we're talking internally, externally, et cetera. So I think that it, besides sort of seemingly pushing medical interventions that are unnecessary to surgically align one's body with the gender that providers assigned, I think that doctors then also pathologize the bodies, and that goes hand in hand with those medical interventions, but then also historically would lie to um, people about their diagnosis and not tell them intersex people and encourage parents to go along with those lies. I do feel if there's been any sort of change in the medicalization experiences for intersex people, it's been around... um, being more truthful about the diagnosis and not withholding that information or encouraging parents to lie to their children or their intersex child. So I do think there's been some shifts there, but I certainly, sadly to this day, know providers who still feel that it's best that the person who is born with an intersex trait not be told the truth about their bodies. And and that's just really scary to me and, and really sad. I could note that um, my wife is also intersex by birth. She's an intersex trans woman and I'm an intersex trans man. We did a little do-si-do from our sexes of assignment. (laughs) And she is one of many people who knew her whole life that her genitalia were considered problematic and that people were monitoring the way that she presented herself in terms of her gender expression, the way she was acting, you know, would she play sports? Was she allowed to play with dolls? But who did not find out until she, you know, turned 18 and could get them herself what her diagnosis was because nobody would say. And she had to get her own medical records. And um, that sort of thing happens still with, you know, sad frequency that people don't know what the story is with their own body and that parents and doctors think that that would somehow protect a person. That person is struggling all along very clearly wanting to know what is it about me that people are finding so problematic. But she also had the experience that lots of intersex folks have of having doctors regularly treat your own body as something that they have the right to explore and stare at because they've decided it's unusual and pathological and they can invite other people to come look at it as well. And so one of the things that doctors do that many intersex folks have complained about is turn intersex people into exhibits, little mini freak shows, and train them to allow 
all sorts of adults that they have not consented to, to touch their bodies, their genitalia, to stare at them in ways that ordinarily we don't, we wouldn't expect any child to be expected to tolerate. So Carrie, would you say that there have been improvements in how the medical profession treats intersex people or not? For a long time, doctors seem to discourage intersex people from ever getting to meet other intersex people. And so lots of folks um, felt that they were the only one on earth. And then the internet happened and doctors just simply lost control over that. So I don't know how much the medical profession has been proactive in getting better. I think that it's that it's been forced on the medical profession that they can no longer keep us apart or have people meet up with other folks and get more education. And that has decreased the whole ethos of keeping everything a secret that used to be pretty prevalent. What changes in approach do you think would help medical professionals better accommodate intersex people? I think that we do a really bad job of treating doctors to be culturally competent, they like to call it. The entire medical profession suffers from a lack of, let's put it really simply, people skills. As medical education has gotten more and more and more technical and less and less and less about how to interact with patients, there's an attempt to sort of a little bit address that through this lens of cultural competency training, where doctors are supposed to learn something about race, ethnicity, and LGBT issues, and a a range of things that would allow them to communicate better with their patients. But that is, one, an incredibly small part of medical training today, and two, treated by just about everybody in the medical profession as not of great import. And I think that that's completely wrongheaded. All medical professionals should get to listen to patients um, who have a variety of different bodies, you know, folks with disabilities, for example, to hear about people's experiences and also to center the idea of treating people as human beings, not as a series of pathologies. There are a lot of medical professionals today who know very little about intersexuality, having graduated from medical college. They had their degree and they've never met an intersex person. And they had, you know, a day in a class that they took where they were talking about endocrine disorders or something where they, where it was brought up. And they are no more educated about uh, intersex folks than non-medical professionals. And then suddenly they wind up with power over somebody's life. (laughs) Uh, And that's not a good thing. Georgian, what changes in approach do you think might help medical professionals better accommodate intersex people? Doctors need to listen to intersex people and intersex advocates, and they need to take a step back and actually themselves as a profession be vulnerable. I think that vulnerability, in my opinion, is key um, here for doctors because I used to be more of an apologist uh, for doctors, thinking that we could work together, uh, we meaning intersex activists or intersex people or whatever terms we want to use, to sort of educate providers and shift medical school curriculum and education would make a difference. But then as I started doing that and, and seeing that it wasn't really leading anywhere, I started becoming less and less of an apologist for doctors and started to think that they don't get a lot of information, um, these medical school students. But when they do, especially these experts who've been, who've been are well known across medicine for, in quotes, treating intersex people, when they hear these critiques from intersex activists that we voiced here about doing um, 
surgeries that are medically unnecessary and irreversible, lying to their patients, et cetera. And they continue to do them and make um, justifications, whether they're citing cancer risk or pointing the finger to parents or what have you. I just don't understand it uh, on both an ethical level or, or even a logical level. I mean, I, I guess I understand it in the sense of their medical authority and everything else. And that's where I think maybe vulnerability would be helpful here for them to step forward and say, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and it's going to require me to sort of acknowledge that maybe what I've been doing it hasn't been the best and, and I need to step away from that. And again, I don't think they would even necessarily have to altogether shift their practices or anything because I'm not against surgeries. I'm just against surgeries that are performed on people when they don't have a say in them. So that's sort of where I stand. I think what needs to change is doctors need to be more vulnerable and um, they need to really, truly listen to intersex people and activists and, and, and a whole slew of others. And by the way, it's not just myself and Carrie here saying this, and these are just our views. Many other organizations, um, world organizations, um, have sort of said some of the same things that we're saying here from the United um to the United uh, Organizations, to our United Nations, excuse me, to the World Health Organization. This is not just us. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcasting youth participant Andrea is talking with professors Carrie Gabriel Costello and George Ann Davis about what it's like to be intersex and about issues faced by intersex people. Both of you have said that you're against surgical interventions on infants and others who can't consent. How does it work out when children are raised simply as intersex without being given a surgery or maybe without even being assigned a gender? George Ann? Well, I'll say it works out just fine. Um, I recently published a, a paper where I asked intersex children between the ages of 11 and 25 about their experiences. And what I found is that they were quite comfortable being intersex. And what prompted me to talk to children who have intersex traits was that I noticed that these kids seem to have a very different experience, these intersex kids, than I did in, say, a generation earlier than them or a generation before me. And part of that was because they know their diagnosis, they're able to connect with other people, and of course, there have been generation or two of intersex activists paving the way, um, the intersex rights movement raising visibility, trans movement raising visibility about differences across bodies, and just so many more discussions uh, in, in the world. And it was just, to me, so comforting to know that the intersex kids are, are all right. And in order to get to this place, they needed to know their diagnosis. And in that paper, my thesis had to do with the fact that doctors would historically keep the diagnosis from intersex kids and encourage parents to do the same because they feared that kids could not handle the diagnosis. Well, I said, guess what? That's not the case today. And I understand that today is a very different time than a generation or two ago, but that's still, to me, is important to know that intersex kids are okay with it and they handle it. And what's also really surprising is these kids use the information about their bodies that they've learned about their natural bodily variations and actually educate their science teachers, their friends. And it's just so incredibly powerful. For example, kids will tell their science teachers, 
no, no, teacher, you have it wrong. XX is not always female and XY is, is not always male. And sure, there are moments that these kids articulated that there were some pushback, but at a way, way, way lower rate than ever could have been imagined. In fact, they feel empowered by their difference. And that's what is really comforting as an intersex activist and an advocate and a sociologist who studies intersex to know that these kids are all right and they're actually okay with it. Of course, it didn't happen out of nowhere. You know, they're standing on the shoulders of countless intersex activists um, and other activists across different groups, raising visibility and challenging our understandings of bodies, sex, gender, sexuality, you name it. Carrie, would it be more complicated to do gender-affirming medical treatment later if um, these intersex people decide that they want it? No, actually the reverse is true. I mean, one of the things that's bad about infant surgery is that if we're talking about genital surgery, you're operating on really tiny genitalia. And one of the differences that seems to emerge between very similar surgeries performed on intersex kids without their consent and on trans adults is that the trans adults are much happier with their surgeries and that's because they are much less likely to lose all of their sexual sensation as a result. <laughs> Why is that? Because their genitalia are large enough that you can see the nerves and you're less likely to sacrifice, uh, to you know, just cut them and so that the person is no longer has sexual sensation. People who have infant genital surgery often do lose part, perhaps all of their sensation. And in a society in which we think it's really important to be able to have sexual relationships as an adult, that's a serious impairment. It's a thing that we decry all the time when we talk about, say, female genital mutilation in other societies where parts of the genitalia are, are cut up or cut out. And we presume that means that you're going to lose sensation and that's a bad thing. And yet with intersex kids, we somehow think, oh, but it'll be fine. Um, it's all for the best. That's not true. Anything to add on that, George Ann? We know when people are able to choose what they would like, whether or not to have any sort of um, surgical interventions, elective surgical interventions on their bodies, you're more likely to be more satisfied with it if you had a say in what it is you chose, what it was or is you chose. So I think that too, I, besides the sort of practical physiological explanations for waiting until the genitalia or the body is larger, I mean, there's also just something about, hey, I had a, I desire this and because I desire this and I elected to do this, then I'm likely to be more happy with the outcome of it, regardless of the outcome itself. So you've both talked about advocacy. What are the issues that intersex advocacy generally focuses on? Georgian, let's start with you. I think the big one is just putting an end to medically unnecessary and irreversible interventions because it robs folks of their autonomy and the and potentially, especially with medical advancements, uh, robs them of their ability to, for most people, to, uh, you know, reproduce uh, biologically or their it takes away their fertility if, if that's, you know, with medical advances possible, all of that. So I think putting an end to that uh, is pretty key um, among many intersex activists, although um, certainly raising visibility and educating doctors and you know, making sure that intersex people know that they're not alone, which would be tied to that visibility piece. So in terms of the general population, how well do you think that most people understand what it means or what it's like to be intersex? Carrie? 
today. Uh, we may hope that we have made some sort of progress and how people are having a more complicated understanding of sex, gender, and sexuality. But you still take a biology class and it shows you two pictures of anatomy when you are learning about sex. And everybody is still being educated in a system that explains sex in a binary way and does not convey that there's variation for all of us in our sex characteristics, but that sex characteristics in general fall along a whole spectrum of possibilities. People still have no idea what it would mean to, what it would look like to be a person with, say, intermediate genitalia. Most people, when they hear the term intersex, they imagine it's somebody with a non-binary gender identity. We're still at a very basic level of understanding. We have a long way to go for people to understand better. And until we complicate the way that we teach everybody about how bodies work, then that's what we're going to continue to produce and for people to think of any variation on that as just wrong or scary or something like that. Uh, it's as if we're, t we're still talking about, say, race in America, and we just want to use the terms black and white. And bodies come in a wide variety of colors, and we have a whole range of races and ethnicities, and yet people keep coming back to a binary language of black and white. And what we need to do with conversations about sex is for people to understand that sex is just as complicated as race ethnicity and that talking about it in these super simplistic terms harms people and is not representative in any way of reality and it's time for us to grow up and have a complicated conversation about human diversity so carrie how well do you find that most people within the lgbtq community understand being intersex not really any more better than people anywhere else. <laughs> so, I mean, really, the way that I, uh, I feel about it. And again, that's because they've had the same education that everybody else in our society has had. They just looked at that same biology textbook. A lot of LGBTQ folks that I speak to will sometimes mention intersex, put it on, like say, and intersex people too, we want to include you, but think of it as a, as a gender identity and not understand that it's about a physical set of differences um, and that we could identify however it is that we do identify, but <laughs> that's not what intersex is about. It's about our bodies. Let's zoom out beyond mainstream American culture. Do you know about how intersex people are understood in different cultures, Carrie? The really big picture is that Folks have been born intersex throughout all of human history and prehistory because it's part of our just natural variation in just the same way that skin color comes in a lot of colors. Um, and that means that every world society has had to figure out how to deal with um, and classify people uh, according to sex, gender. And when you look at the world historical picture, you find out that in tons of societies, um, intersex people have been recognized and accepted and had social roles for them. Um, that you know, so many world societies did not just have binary sex options; they have had other ways to um, have people occupy a recognized sex category that is not like man or woman. For example, uh, traditionally. Uh, in Jewish culture, I'm, I'm Jewish, people and animals could be classified not just as male or female, but as both or neither. <laughs> and there were appropriate ways for people to live and be recognized within their social and religious communities as a person who is both in the both category or in the, the neither category. There are world societies that have 
uh, you know, five sex categories there. Are, it seems like the most common in all world societies has been three. And so that really helps give perspective on our own cultural assumptions about how binary sex is the somehow the only reality and that intersex folks just don't fit into the norm. In plenty of societies, they had their own place. And that's that's good. Uh, but Western medicine has been exporting a binary vision of what is allowed and normal out into the world in general. So instead of a story of you know progress, we have a, a story of people's experiences becoming more negative and more pathologized. And what I would hope is that zooming out would allow us to see um, how intersex folks could be very well recognized and allowed to live in a social role made just for them <laughs> or you know, just as people. Uh, and that that would be positive. But we also, in zooming out, should recognize how we are exporting a particular vision of what normal bodies are supposed to be like out into a larger world. Beyond that, um, is there any other way that you hope to change mainstream views on being intersex or on sex or gender in general, Carrie? You take two steps forward and you get one step back. And a two steps forward for intersex folks has been a greater impact of intersex advocacy. So we are starting to be more on the radar of people. The one step back is that intersex folks have been for so long made thought of as simply a medicalized community that we haven't really been on the political radar of many folks. And the negative thing that has happened that is just starting to happen is that some people who are engaged in anti-LGBT activism have started to include intersex folks in that as well. So for example, this summer there was a, a document released called the Nashville Statement. It is signed by a bunch of conservative evangelical anti-LGBT leaders, and it essentially says that the Bible requires in their religious interpretation that everybody is assigned male or female at birth, and that they have to live in that assigned sex that cannot gender transition, and that they must be heterosexual, and that they should attempt to procreate. And notice that the first thing in there is that everybody is assigned male or female at birth. So they acknowledge that intersex exists, and they say it's not a sin to be born with an atypical body, but they also say that their interpretation of religion is that parents have to go out and find if there is any doctor who will assign you to a sex, assign you to a binary sex, and that therefore you can grow up to be a supposedly cisgender straight person who is following their vision of what Christianity looks like, which is a very limited perspective on what Christianity looks like. But the main point of that is that there are now people out there who are cons who are viewing intersex advocates as dangerous, liberal, scary, destroying the gender world people, and that we have to be prepared to deal with that because it hasn't been a primary focus of intersex advocacy yet. We've been mostly focused on the medical community or in general education, and now we have to think also about um, a rearguard action against conservatives who are going to have a particular stripe who want to fight for continuing to impose infant surgery as somehow required by a conservative worldview. This has been a great conversation. Georgian and Carrie, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great. Thanks. 
I think it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me on your program. This has been the second part of our series on intersex. Both parts are available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. And that's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Andrea, Dante, Druve, Griffin, Lauren, Quinn, Nico, Max, Sam, and me, Lucas. Our assistant producers are Alex Mintz and Josh Valley, and our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Lucas. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support, and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.